All right. Well, good news. Glad that you're here tonight. <laughs> Think about all the things that, you know, we do throughout our day, throughout our week. And you think about the things that could really fuel our soul, could encourage our soul, could give us the nourishment that we need to really thrive in this life as God says that will only come through being fed things that would be nourishing on a, in a spiritual matters and in our, in our growth and our walk with him that that would require that we would get the nourishment that comes from the word of God and part of that is fellowship with others, part of that is singing songs that are tied to and connected to and are sourced in, in God's word. Some of that is just even the, the value of gathering to see one another in a, in a relational type of a way and how God uses us in each other's lives if we're willing to let him. So it's always nice to be able to get together with you. I'm glad you're here tonight. There's a men's Bible study on Friday morning. So that's Friday morning. That's December, December 1st. And other than that, there's a number of things that are coming up. For, you, for those who haven't noticed, all of the upcoming events are on a display screen before every service. In the, in the entryway to the church. So if there's ever a time where you're kind of wondering what are some of the things that are coming up, that's one place you could just pause for a moment and, and see some of the options, some of the upcoming events, and they're all going to be listed there. And then, of course, uh, Janice does a great job of updating the events on our website too. There's a tab called Upcoming Events, and you can look at what's coming in the near future. And it's something that makes it pretty easy. Most of you are now becoming more and more Tech savvy as we live in a world where there's greater and greater connectedness and access to those kinds of things. So just a reminder in that. Otherwise, let's start here this evening with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for your amazing love. Thank you that it's something that we don't deserve. It's something that you, in your compassion for us and your mercy toward us, you saw fit to make a way for us to be reconciled to you and redeemed restored and forgiven, not because of anything that we had done, but according to your mercy, you saved us by the washing of regeneration and the filling of the Spirit. And you think about the, the truth of what grace is really about and why it's so amazing, because it's nothing that we have anything else to compare to. It's so different from every other thing that we're familiar with and accustomed to in our lives. Pray that we would want to share the grace of God, the message of grace, the good news of grace with others. Pray that we would have a heart that wants to have that be our drumbeat, the thing that we're singing with our lives is just being a reflection of your goodness and your love and your grace so that other people can see it. As we even think about the many opportunities we have throughout the day to just enjoy our lives with you, to include you in our lives, to be trusting you and depending on you to lead and direct. Pray that that would also give us a vision and an, an eye towards how we could have an impact on the people that you've put in our spheres of influence so that we could want to shine some of your light into the whatever it is that they're going through, knowing, through that it, knowing that it's always something and that what they really need is you. They really need your light. Pray that we would see that that's first and foremost what our focus ought to be on, but that it's only going to happen when we're trusting you ourselves. So thank you for that truth. Pray that you'd help us to have hearts that want to know you more, have a mindset that says, I'm not satisfied with what I do know about you. I want to know you completely. I want to know you fully. I want to know you as I am known 
And of course, I'm known fully. So pray that we'd have hearts that want to invest in your truth and in your word and in growing and learning that we wouldn't just try to tread water, but we would want to move forward. We want to allow you to continue the transformation process that you started the moment we put our faith in your son. Pray that we wouldn't resist that, that we would embrace that those changes will ultimately be for our benefit and for your glory. Pray that we could have that heart as we even look at your truth here tonight. Pray that you give me wisdom so that what is said is accurate and clear. Pray that you would get all of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the title of tonight's sermon is The Good Life, The Good Life. Occasionally you hear people refer to the good life. I know I do. The context always includes a present experience that they're going through that's perceived to be beneficial and good. So this present state of prosperity or present state of happiness, of restfulness, peace, or relaxation, if that's what's occurring in the present, you might hear somebody say something along, along the lines of, this is the good life, or isn't this the good life? As you think about the good life in the temporal sense, this perspective, it's often justified relative to other more challenging or more difficult or harder circumstances, again, on a human level, on a temporal level, that people might have just been going through. And so when you get to this place of calm or peace or uh, relaxation, again, happiness, prosperity, things seem to be going right, that would naturally bring about a mindset that says, now this is, this is what I think of when I think of what a good life would be like. But however, this mentality that makes sense, it's natural, it's understandable, but it completely misses the mark that mentality does in terms of an internal perspective. You see, the Bible doesn't equate a good life to prosperity, happiness. Sometimes it does equate it to spiritual peace or spiritual rest. But from a physical perspective, physical rest, physical peace, or even physical relaxation, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible associates the good life as a life that is lived in close relationship with God, trusting God, enjoying Him, depending on Him, including Him in the details and in the moments of our lives, remaining intimately close to Him. That's what the Bible describes as the good life, especially as we're thinking about spiritual matters or spiritual well-being, which sadly that's sometimes a very secondary thing. We don't think about it first. We think about the physical realm, the natural realm, the temporal realm, before we have a perspective or we're maybe reminded that we're just supposed to be heavenly minded, eternally minded, thinking about things from that perspective instead of just the here and now. So as you think about this series on insights from Psalms that we've been going through, Psalm 37 contrasts the good life of the believer, one that is both available in the present and one that's available in the future and directly tied to trusting the Lord and seeing his provision in our lives with the plight of those who have no hope and are without God. As you think about the ungodly or those that are lost, there's many different ways to talk about somebody who is without God, but ungodly means without God. Now, oftentimes people focus first and foremost on behavior that isn't being led and directed by God and saying that's not like God, so it's ungodly. But ungodly just as often could refer to the absence of God in that life. Now, that could be true of a believer in terms of a practical state of being, but it also obviously is true positionally of those who have never known the Savior, never known or put their faith in God's provision to deal with their sinfulness. 
So as you think about somebody who can have a good life, the only one who could really have a good life is one who is a believer, one who is walking by faith from God's definition of what a good life would actually be. And again, this psalm here contrasts that with those who, again, have no hope and are without God in their lives. And it includes the way that the psalmist goes about doing this is through several exhortations and reminders about what a good life or a life that is blessed in a sense by God, what that would be, what that would look like or how it can be experienced. And so if you're not there, let's turn to Psalm 37 tonight. It's quite a long psalm. And so we'll try to move through it. We can't get through 40 verses here tonight without, by making a lot of observations about every verse, but we'll look at it in more of a 10,000 foot overview and try to draw some principles and some useful encouragements and exhortations from this psalm. So Psalm 37. Now as you think about titles, there's human titles that are sometimes associated with different passages in, in a Bible that, especially Bibles that are inclined towards being study Bibles. And at least my version of the, the Schofield Study Bible, which isn't the only study Bible there is, but it's a study Bible and it's one that we've you know, promoted here at our church over time because of some of the useful things in it that we ha- would, would have agreed with, though not everything. There's no, such, no, there's no such thing as, I would say, something that you could say is absolutely perfect other than God's word itself, and even that is subject to the enlightenment of the Spirit of God, the learning that comes from studying the word of God, and the exposure and the teaching that comes by way of other people that God puts in our lives both as the Holy Spirit himself has a teaching ministry and an illuminating ministry in our lives, but God also uses people to do that. So a little bit at a time, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, we can learn God's truth. But this particular study Bible of mine labels this psalm, Trust in the Lord. And I think what, a, what, an, interesting, what an interesting way to describe the good life. It's a good life if you're going to take nothing away tonight and you're the kind of person that I lose you after five minutes or so because it's been a long day, you know, you're you're tired or I just have a droning voice or whatever. This is the thing to take away is that the good life, the kind of life that is worthwhile is a life that is described by trusting God, which includes availing ourselves of or being reminded of his many provisions in our lives. So make a note of that. That's the thing that I hope you leave with here tonight. But how about we start with verse 1 here and we'll look at this first section. Now the first section of this psalm I would describe as don't worry about or envy those without God. Don't worry about or envy those who are without God. Now they're described here as evildoers but we're talking about somebody who doesn't have God, who's without God, ungodly. So verse 1 says do not fret Because of what? Because of evildoers. Nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. They have no future. Now you're thinking about this section here. If we're talking about the good life, he's going to start off by saying the good life isn't going to be found by looking at the lives of the world around us. Looking Looking at the lives and the experiences of those who have rejected God, who are operating apart from God, who are rebelling against God. We're not going to find an illustration of the good life there because they don't even have life. He who has the Son has life. 
He who does not have the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Life itself is connected to trusting God, putting our faith in, again, God's provision to deal with man's hopeless condition, man's sinfulness, to pay a debt that we could never pay. And putting all of our eggs in that basket by faith apart from works. That's the message of the Bible. So as you're thinking about even this situation, why would he start with this? You could ask yourself that. Why would he start with a warning like this? Do not be, do not fret because of evildoers and do not be envious of workers of iniquity. Well, why would you start with that? And the reason is because that's the natural tendency. The natural tendency is to become captivated by the world, distracted by the world, envious and jealous of the things of the world to seek after the things of the temporary instead of the things of the eternal. That's the natural default. You don't have to work hard to do that. You just automatically will do that when you're not thinking straight, when the Spirit of God isn't moving and working in your life. So he begins with a warning against what is the natural tendency. Now, it's stated up front because it actually happens more often than it should. This is the default. And as I thought about this section, I thought, you know, you could read through this and you could jump right across it thinking, well, that's not something that I would do. But that's foolish. You're not immune from this. And, it, and when you're being honest, you are impacted by the thinking of the world, the things of the world, the perspective of those things that stand apart from God. And in that sense, ungodliness itself. You're impacted by that. Why? Because the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, there's nothing good that dwells. We haven't been fully glorified yet. Though we've been, the sin nature has been stripped of its right to rule and reign in our lives. It's been stripped of its power in a sense, judicially. But practically, it still has a great influence on our lives and on our thinking. So does the influence of Satan in the world and the world's perspective. And so we are at risk of being captivated and concerned about what? Do not fret. Fretting or being scared, being overly concerned with is how I would put it. But worrying about evildoers and being envious of workers of iniquity. So those are the two parts of this. Don't worry about the wicked. Don't envy the lost. Now, he summarizes this in verse 2 by saying, there's no future for the ungodly, so don't focus on them. There's no life to be found there. There's no light to be found there. There's no energy re-energization re to be found there. There's no, there's no spiritual feeding that could be found there. There's no nourishment that could be found there. There's no direction, perspective, purpose that could be found there. There's no contentment that could be found there. Yeah, there's passing pleasure and sin for a season. There's, there's maybe some distraction from other things to just get our mind off other things. And we'd say, well, this is a needed distraction. This is nice. But there's nothing lasting there, nothing with substance. And that's why the psalmist starts with this. Instead of trusting in or being focused on or obsessed about these other things, he's going to say trust in the Lord instead. Now, as I was thinking about these first two verses, I thought, I think both of them are relevant. But how often do you even find this to be a modern problem, even with people that you know or even in your own life, this idea of fretting about evildoers, thinking that somehow God doesn't have it under control? Now, it's starting to act almost as if somehow the whole thing is spiraling out of God's control. The fact that things are on a downward spiral, for one, it would assume that things were ever in a good place to begin with. And I think that's an argument that could be made. We'd, it'd take longer than I can 
here tonight, but uh, this idea that things are spiraling down her, here, downward suggests that there was a time when things were better. And I think that's very relative because Satan is not, he's never taken a day off. He's never changed his tactics. The heart of man has never been, uh, after the fall, has never been any different. The way that man expresses his rejection and rebellion against God has changed. We're told that there's a moral man, a religious man. There's a, there's a moral, religious, and immoral man. And they express their rejection and rebellion against God in a lot of different ways. Some of it sounds a lot like accepting God's truth, though. But if you're giving lip service to God's truth without ever putting your trust in Him, then that never represented a good place or something that God could ever honor. God says he doesn't honor anything that's done that's even right if it's done apart from him. All of our works of righteousness that are wrought by the flesh are not satisfying or pleasing to God, period. So you you talk about a state of existence in the world at different times where there's, quote, relative morality, or there's a strong sense of religion, But the Bible tells us that by and large, the response of man over time, regardless of which time you're talking about, has been to reject the light and turn from the light. And so sometimes we get inundated with this mentality that things are so much worse today than they were yesterday. And the truth is on a a spiritual level, as God is concerned, I don't know that that's true. But imagine being obsessed about the iniquity of, of evildoers, about the actions of evildoers. And that's the thing that we're focused on and talking about instead of the goodness of God and God's plan in an eternal sense, God's plan for the ages, God's usefulness of us individually in carrying out and fulfilling His objective that all would come to a place of salvation, that all would be saved. And how God wants to use us in the lives of each other to cause, what, discouragement? to remind each other that there is an opposition that we're facing, to remind each other that there is some blackness and darkness and bleakness in the world? Is that what we're intended to remind each other about? Well, maybe. Maybe a little bit of a warning there. But the preponderance of our responsibility or or our mission to each other is to build up, to exhort and encourage and convict, to to bring godliness to the life by a conversation about what God says is true and what God's perspective is about things and what God's bless the many blessings God has given in our lives and how God desires to use us collectively and to remind ourselves that God is in control that God has never abdicated his throne ever not once although he has determined or to allow men to reap the consequences of the rebellion and rejection of him but he hasn't done that while giving up control He's decided or determined to allow that to happen. And so, in any event, I I touch on that periodically. Some of you think more often than not because I do think it is a very real and present danger that we would become focused on the wrong things by focusing on brokenness and focusing on the world and focusing on evil and iniquity instead of our focus needs to be on the author and finish of our faith. And our perspective should always be an uplifted one of I am blessed all of the time. God is good all of the time. God is faithful all of the time. And this story that I'm living has a happy ending. This story that I'm living ends in absolute and complete victory. That's a fact. And there's a lot of encouragement that comes from that and none that comes from the alternative. Now we continue with our psalm here. We think about instead of worrying about or envying those that don't have God, how about focusing on God instead? How about trusting God instead? And this is the heart of the psalm here. 
The rest of it starts to become somewhat repetitive, but let's pick up in verse 3. In, alterna- in the alternative, instead of doing that, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. There's a, there it is a second time. We'll find it at least one more time. And He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light. And your justice as the noonday, meaning very bright, you'll be a light for God, a light for Jesus in our dispensation is how we would say it. Verse 7, rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Instead of being agitated or fretting about evildoers, rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way in this context, the ungodly, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Don't concern yourself with that. Instead, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Harm to who? Well, to you and everyone around you. Because while you're fretting and focused on the wrong things, what are you not doing? You're not being, you're not illuminating or reflecting the light of Jesus Christ into the lives of the people that you were tasked with being a light to. Think of that. When you're doing your own thing, when you're focused on the wrong things, you are failing the mission. And it's impacting you and everybody around you. And sometimes we're cavalier about the impact of our unwillingness to trust the Lord. We don't see how harmful it is to us, how it hinders the work of the Lord, and how it impacts negatively those that he's put in our periphery. So let's go through some of these a little bit closer because he's given several examples here to illustrate the believer's proper perspective. And all, I hope you noticed as we were reading them, but they're all stated as active verbs describing intentional actions or intentional decisions that you have to make if you're going to trust the Lord. You, th- you think about, we, we label it here or talk about it, Maybe we is too general of a term, but certainly people who have come before me and myself have spoken about a phrase that we would label as positive volitional response. Like, you want to know what your part in living a life of faith is. Well, your part isn't to provide the direction. Your part isn't to provide the mission or even identify the mission. Your part isn't to lead. Your part isn't to empower. Your part isn't to provide what is needed. Your part is to respond positively to the Lord, which starts with getting our gaze and our focus and our dependence on Him, looking to Him, having a vertical mindset, a mindset that says, Lord, I want to seek You out. I want to follow You. I want to let You accomplish Your purposes in my life. God's not going to do it against your will, but He doesn't need you in a sense either. He needs you to get yourself out of the way. He needs you to be willing to allow him and let him have his way in you. So you could let this mind be in you. Allow it to be true by exercising actual intentional decision making, a volitional response that says, Lord, this is what I want. And then he says, I'm going to take that willingness and I'm going to work through you through the power of my spirit, through the direction that I provide, with the resources that I provide to make this something that would be profitable that would accomplish something useful in time and in eternity would be valuable to you, good for you, beneficial for you, and it would bring me glory. That's how God looks at it. That's how we ought to look at it. Now look at these action verbs, these active verbs. Verse three, trust in the Lord. 
It starts with that. Trust in the Lord. Now what's associated with trusting the Lord? Well, doing good. Why? Because God produces goodness in the lives of those who are trusting in Him. We become a reflection of Him. And who is He? He is good. How often? All the time. How much of Him? All of Him. He's all good all the time. And when He's being reflected through our lives, then we're going to be doing good. Now dwell in the land. Now that's a response of faith, especially here in the context, to the nation of Israel. And the covenant promises that God had made to them, one of them was seed, one of them was land though, the promised land. And, and for them to take advantage of the rest that God aff- offers, it required what? It required a response of faith. Now did they ever have a complete response of faith? The answer is no. They never experienced the land as God intended. Now they, they did occupy significant portions of it, but in complete faith, no. For any, for any lasting period of time, not, not any significantly lasting period of time, no. In, in a way that was faithful to him, giving him all the glory, giving him all the credit, keeping their gaze fixed on him, no. They're described as continually whoring after other gods and other nations and other things. Very descriptive language, especially if you read the minor prophets about God's viewpoint towards their repeatedly leaving their allegiances that they should have had to him, the loyalty they should have had to him, espoused to him, and turning to try to find comfort in other places. Graphic, but illustrative of what we do in our lives when we're not trusting the Lord. We're not following him. We're not staying connected to him. So dwell in the land. That's a synonymous with trusting the Lord. That's the response that would come from trusting the Lord because that's what he had promised it. Now, how about this one at the end of verse three? Feed on his faithfulness. Please write that down. Feed on his faithfulness. Are you hungry? Do you feel like, you feel like you're spiritually famished? Do you feel like you got some pang, those hunger pangs, pangs in, the, in, the, in your gut? That something's missing from your life? There's not a real bounce in your step. You don't really have that joy that you kind of intellectually you know is available. It's possible that the joy of the Lord is a thing, but you're not experiencing it. If you're not at peace and you're agitated and you're upset and you're frustrated often, something's missing, you're not, you're not tying into it, you're not really experiencing the good life that God says he's come to give you that abundant life, a full, a full life. How about come back to this? Feed on his faithfulness. Ask yourself, what have I been feeding on? What have I been taking in? What have I been digesting? I guarantee that if you're struggling to enjoy the Lord, to experience his peace, to experience his joy, it's because you're not eating the kinds of things that could feed your soul, that could nourish your soul. How do I know that? I've been there plenty of times. I'm sure I'll be there again. Hopefully you can come up to me when you see me down and you can say, hey, have you been feeding on his faithfulness? Have you been feeding on his faithfulness? What a phrase. I've never seen anything like this. Feed on his faithfulness. Now, it gets, it's equally good as you keep going. Verse four, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in in the Lord, and then what does it say? And he shall give you the desires of your heart. How could that be true? How could the desires of your heart automatically come to fruition when you're delighting yourself in the Lord? Because when you're enjoying the Lord and you're feeding on his faithfulness and you're trusting in the Lord, then the things that your heart is gonna desire are the very same things that God is going to want in your life. 
You're, you're never going. When God can, he can very easily promise to give us an our answer all of our prayers and to give us everything that we're desiring when we're trusting Him because we will never desire something that's incompatible with His will for our lives. Now think about that. So many people read this and they're like, all I have to do to get the desires in my heart is to delight in the Lord. Like this is some kind of a trick that you could finally get that new thing. I didn't fill in the blank there because I don't want to you know, get anybody agitated tonight, but whatever that thing is that you've been wondering about, thinking about, whatever it is that you've convinced yourself would actually make your life fulfilling, that you think is missing, or actually, maybe actually is missing in human terms, but you've convinced yourself that that's the thing that's holding you back. And the truth is that if you're enjoying the Lord and trusting the Lord, if you're feeding on His faithfulness and delighting yourself in Him, you're not going to want anything that's any different than exactly what he wants in your life. And that's why you can know he'll answer those prayers and he will provide absolutely everything that he thinks that you need, which is everything that you're going to want when you're walking in dependence on him. Now, what's the next statements? Five and six here say, commit your way to the Lord. Then we have a repeating here thing again here, trust also in him. Commit your way to the Lord. The idea there is trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your way, acknowledge Him. Commit your way, same thing. Acknowledge Him. Let Him. And He will what? Direct your paths. Commit, commit thee, or entrust is that word, what that word commit means there. Entrust the direction of your life to Him. Now it comes right back to trusting the Lord. It's the same word. Entrust and trust. Commit. Trust. Trust. Give it over to Him. Uh, 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 give the safeguarding of the direction of your life to Him. Give the controls to Him. Now, what's that going to involve? It's going to involve taking your hands off the steering wheel. As the song of Carrie Underwood from years back said, Jesus, take the wheel. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I I mentioned it. It's not going to be our next song of the month. Don't worry. Don't worry. But I'll tell you what, Jesus, take the wheel. I can't be directing my own steps at the same time I'm letting God direct in my life. So, commit your way to the Lord. Then we come down to the next thing it says here. Uh, It says, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light. Think about that. It doesn't say you will bring forth the righteousness as a light to others. It says that while you're trusting in him, after you've committed your, the direction of your life to him, which is a sign of trusting in him, it's a byproduct or it flows from trusting in him. So it starts with trusting in him, which leads you then to, to entrust the direction of your life to him. And when that's true, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light. Who produces that? God does in your life. For all those people who are talking about how you need to produce fruit in your life, that's never what the Bible describes. The Bible describes God producing fruit in your life. So when you say you need to produce fruit in your life as a way to confirm the authenticity of your faith, it's misguided. Because any fruit that would be present in your life could only be present if you were connected to the vine, if you were abiding in the vine, if you were letting God work in and through your life. That's the only way any fruit could be possible in your life. So it has nothing to do whatsoever with justification. It has to do with Christian living. How, how would you live a life that would bring God glory? So then we look at verse 7. What does it say there? Another action verb. Rest in the Lord. 
Rest in the Lord, the last part of it, is wait patiently for him. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now, what is resting in the Lord going to involve? It's going to involve collapsing into his capable arms. You can't be fighting and resisting and striving at the same time you're resting in the Lord and waiting patiently for Him. You can't be agitated and seeking out some quicker solution, some quicker answer, while at the same time patiently waiting for the Lord. But is waiting on the Lord easy? And the answer is no, it's not. It doesn't come naturally. Is resting easy? No, we naturally are fretful. We're naturally worrying. We're naturally obsessing about things that we truly have no control over anyway. Instead of giving them to the one who is in control, we just won't do it. God says, would you do that? If you would learn to trust me, then you could learn to rest in me. And so what does that involve? He says it again here. Do not fret because of, again, those who are without God. The wicked, the evil, those who are ungodly. We're not fretting about that. We're not angry. We're not filled with wrath. Our worry only causes harm, is how verse 8. Harm to who primarily? Again, us and others. Us and others. The people in our lives that would benefit from us trusting the Lord, being able to tap into our example or the encouragement that would come from seeing us have a walk of faith and dependence instead of learning from us so many of the negative habits that ultimately will end up plaguing them in their lives. So how about, some, how about some awesome action verbs there, huh? Active verbs that talk about how we can respond volitionally to what God has done in our lives in contrast to the alternative, which was to envy and fret about the things of the world and the people of the world. Now we move on. He kind of changes gears here a little bit, and he says, there's no reason to focus on the ungodly. Our focus is supposed to be on God, not the ungodly. And the reason he says it's, there's no point in focusing on them is he says, their fate is already set. There's no reason to focus on them. The victory has already been won would be a shorthand version of this. We don't have to worry about them because God is the one who is the vindicator. God is the one who will provide a, a just evaluation. God is the, the one who brings justice. God is the one who will judge. He doesn't need you to judge. You can make a judgment, but you don't need to judge. God's the one who will do that. You don't even have to worry about it. And God is the perfect judge, as the one who's completely just, as the one who is ultimately the victor, just about giving things over to him and saying, Lord, I don't need to envy the ungodly. There's nothing to envy about their fate about how this turns out compared to how things turn out for the child of God. Now let's read a little bit about it. Start in verse 9. For evildoers, what's going to happen to them? This is why we don't fret about it. Evildoers shall be cut off. God will handle that judgment. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. That's what we have to be focused on. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Meaning, those who ultimately reject God are going to be forever separated from God in the place where God isn't, which is the lake of fire, ultimately. And in the meantime, they're just biding their time. But they, they don't have a future to look forward to with God because they've chosen to rebel and reject God. So he says, they'll be here a little while, and then there'll be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more, the place of the wicked. But what does he say, verse 11? The meek shall inherit the earth. 
and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. That sounds like a pretty attractive future they have to look forward to. The wicked, though, back to the contrast, plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. So it's not like we're not, face any adversi- we're not facing adversity or we're not being attacked by or we don't feel anything happening on the part of the wicked. We're just not supposed to be fretting about it or envying them. So are, are they out to get you in a sense? Well, yeah, in a sense. Do, do, do the lost love the things of truth? Are, are the lost and those that don't have God in their lives, are they super supportive of the things of faith or pe- in the people of faith? And the answer is no. I was just mentioning to Sherry before the service here tonight, I did a funeral in Aurora yesterday and there's that place was packed. I, I, I'd be guessing, but I'm guessing there are 150 people packed in there, about 50 people standing across the back. And I shared the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. While I was doing that, and this isn't normal for me to notice this, but there was a guy three rows back that was just absolutely miserable listening to this. And he was just twisting in his seat, and he was becoming obviously agitated. He was obviously irritated about the message of grace. He clearly did not want to hear it. And the longer I spoke, the worse it got. I actually felt I felt in a sec- for a second there that if it were legal to like attack preachers, he, he might have done that. Like it, it, it was that level of overt agitation at hearing about grace. And I thought to myself, what is it about the message of grace that could be that upsetting, that could agitate you that much? And there's only one answer to that, is it excludes human beings, it excludes human effort, it excludes merit, that's the thing that's so upsetting about grace, is it excludes you. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he just had indigestion or maybe he just had a tough day. I don't know. But it just got worse and worse from, from my perspective in terms of his response. So I, I don't know. That's up for, to, for the Lord to judge. I'm just saying, I think the preaching of the cross is offensive to those who are without God, those who are perishing, those who have, want no interest, have no interest in God. They don't want to hear about the grace of God. And so sad, but everyone is given an opportunity uh, to respond. Now, as we come back to our, our text here, as we're looking at those that are, are kind of on that side of it, they're not interested in it. Well, they are looking forward to an eternity where the Lord is going to deal with them in judgment. So you can either come to the Lord in a place of, a posture of, We'll see this humility where we say, Lord, save me. That, have that kind of a posture. I need you to do for me what I could never do for myself, to see that you have a need that you can't fix on your own. Or you come to the Lord with a different posture, a posture of rejection. But those that reject God and rebel against him and won't accept him, won't put their faith in him, they won't trust in the Lord. What does it say in verse 13? The Lord laughs at him. The one who is ungodly, going against God. For he sees that what? He sees that his day is coming. The wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him not because he's a sinner, not because he's any worse than any of us are, but because he does not have the Son. He will not accept God's solution to deal with his sinfulness. He will not do it. And so that person is facing God's wrath, facing God's future judgment. So he laughs at him. He sees that his day is coming. Now, the wicked have drawn the sword and they have bent their bow 
They have this sense that they can stand against and resist the almighty God to cast down the poor and the needy to slay those who are up, of upright conduct. Their, sh- their sword, though, shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. They're not going to be victorious. There's no, there's no victory. There's no winning. There's, no, there's nothing good that's going to come from a rejection of God. Now, verse 16. Now, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. We almost have a proverb here. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous, meaning the way of the ungodly shall not prosper. The way of the ungodly shall perish. For the Lord knows the way of the ungodly. No, Lord, the Lord knows the way of the Righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And here we have it again. That's from Proverbs. So as we're looking at this a little bit deeper, a few things to bring out here. There's nothing again, though, to focus on. There's no reason to focus on the ungodly. Their, their fate is sealed. Those without God have no future hope. Their rejection of God in time will result in their separation from God for eternity. In the temporal sense, the way of the ungodly, it seems prosperous. You notice how he talks about there's some evidences here that might make you think they have it better than I do. They have it better than I do. Says uh, they... Oh, here it is. In, it's in verse 16. It, it's talking about the, the ungodly person in the context of, of being rich. And it's saying that having a little bit in terms of material wealth, but having the Lord in your life is far better because we have a tendency to see the prosperity of the ungodly. It's not to say that they never have any prosperity. They do. It's just that it's not something that is going to provide them with anything that is of lasting value. It's not something to envy. And so as you're, as you're thinking about that, that's why he's saying do not be envious of the workers of iniquity. Why? Because they see some level of human success. It's not like they never prosper or they never have any perceived success in the temporal realm. They do. But the thing that, why we're not focused on them is because God is saying, although it seems prosperous, God has promised that Rejection of him ends in eternal destruction. That's how this ends. So we don't need to be envious of that prosperity which is fleeting when we know how their future ends. Now consider the contrasting future of the believers because the, the future of, or the fate of the ungodly is set. It's not good. It ends in judgment. But how about the future of the believers? Well, it says this in verse 9. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. We're going to get to live in God's eternal kingdom as a result of our faith in Him. Now, there's other promises that God made to national Israel that will be fulfilled in the future too by a faithful God. But as you're just thinking about what the believer has to look forward to, it's a new heavens and a new earth that we'll get to enjoy for all of eternity. What else does it say? Verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. 
Now, some of that may be talking even about the millennial kingdom, the earthly kingdom, the earthly reign of Christ on the first phase, I would call it. I would describe it as the first phase of the eternal kingdom with a thousand-year millennial kingdom. How about verse 17? It says, the Lord upholds the righteous. That's what the, the future of the believer is, is to be upheld in his capable hands. Now, as you think about this, dependence or waiting on the Lord and meekness are held up as the critical distinguishing characteristics of the believer as opposed to the ungodly. The believer is said to be trusting or relying on the Lord. We see that with the word wait in verse 9. Those who wait on the Lord. Those who are trusting and relying on and depending on God's provision. And then what's the other part? The other description of the godly is that they're meek. And that speaks of humility. See, you'll never trust. If this is back to, this is about trusting in the Lord. Trusting in the Lord to experience the good life. You'll never trust and rely on God apart from humbly seeing that you need Him, that you need His provision in your life. And then you think about avoiding the temptation to trade truth or God's principles, God's truth, biblical principles for temporal treasures. In verse 16 there, you see that it says, I should have read a little bit farther. Where do we end here? Um, No, I read this. We're good where it says, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. There's a temptation there to trade in God's truth for temporal treasure. We ought to resist that. And there's a reminder about that here to the man of faith in verse 16 as we all have the opportunity to read that. Now, the next section here, it talks about the future of the believer. It's very bright in contrast to the fate of unbelievers. And in some sense, it's, a it's rep repetitive or repetitious of what was kind of just said about the fate of the ungodly. It just expands on that, though. So we'll pick up in verse 18. We're contrasting here now. The future of the believer, it's bright. He just got done saying that there's no reason to focus on the ungodly because their fate is not bright. But the future of the believer is bright in contrast to what was just dis discussed. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the upright. So instead of, he's talking about the arms of the wicked being broken, it's better than the riches of the many wicked. He's talking about judgment that they're going to be facing. Now verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. Not temporal wealth, not temporal success or accomplishment here on earth, but eternal an eternal inheritance. Their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. And in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. But in contrast, now again, there's always these contrasts going through here. The wicked shall perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth. Those blessed by by God, it's capital H on that hymn. And those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hands. So the future of the believer, it's bright. Now look at it a little bit. The believer's future is secure is how he starts out in verse 18 and 19. He says, an inheritance that lasts forever, it's secure. You can count on it. You can take it to the bank. He says they will have all they need in hard times. That's what he's talking about in verse 19, about them not being ashamed. They'll have everything that they need. But the future of the lost is dire in comparison in verse 20. 
When you think about verse 20, it talks about being an enemy of the Lord, being an enemy of the Lord. How do you become God's enemy? The Bible says that before we were regenerated, before we were made right with God on the basis of what God could do for sinful man, we were described as being God's enemies. Why? Because we were acting in rebellion against him. We were promoting the things that were in opposition to his plan and purpose. And so in that sense, we were his enemies, though he loved us desperately. And he wanted to reconcile us to himself and to end the hostilities that existed between sinful man and a holy God. He wanted to end that. And he, we know that he wanted to do that through the provision of a substitute in the place of the guilty, which ultimately ended up becoming the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who was the final reconciliation. The, he was the access that we needed to God through the redemption that was in his blood. So as we're thinking about even these, these passages here, there's... There's a lot to look at in terms of how, how you could be God's enemy. Well, you do it by rejecting him. That's not, it's not that God wants that. Now, he then says, your position and perspective, it has practical present implications. He's talking about your future being bright, but then he talks about the practical present implications. In verse 21, he talks about the sort of the, the thinking and, and the way that the perspective of the lost impacts their behavior. It says the wicked borrows and does not repay. I would just summarize that by saying the one without God behaves just as you would expect. Now, verse 21b, it says, but a believer with the right perspective acts differently. The righteous shows mercy and gives. That's the perspective of the one who is responding in faith to God's direction in his life. Then as you look at more a little bit further into this in verse 22, he, he brings out this point where he says, your position or your identification, it has future implications. Now, your, your position and your perspective, it has present implications in the sense that it affects the things, that, the way that you would behave, the way that you would think, then affects the way that you would act. And then he talks about the future implications, though, of this too. For those blessed by him shall inherit, meaning in the future that will happen, those cursed by him shall be cut off. That's, God, is, God is responding to man's free choice. Man making a decision to either accept or reject him, but God honors that decision. One of them is going to come with condemnation, and one of them is going to come with exaltation, not not because of anything that we've done, but based on a decision that we made to either put our trust in God, to put our confidence in Him, or to reject Him and rebel against Him. Now, he summarizes the believer's proper perspective in verse 23, where he says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. That's the proper perspective of one who is walking by faith. Their steps are ordered by the Lord. A good man there is not re referencing somebody who is inherently good in and of himself. We're talking about one who's walking by faith, the one who's trusting God. That righteous man then, why is he righteous? Because God is making him right. That righteous man, his steps are directed, ordered by the Lord. We find our path by God himself. Now, what is the byproduct of that? What is the result of trusting God and allowing Him to lead? Well, it's pretty awesome. Verse 23b, we see He, God, delights in His way. Now, some translations have that He, not capitalized, meaning that the one who is, the one who is presently having His steps directed by the Lord is presently delighting in God's way for His life, God's direction for, for His life. And, and that's true. That's also true. But the way New King James has it here, it's capital capitalized H on that he, he delights in his way, meaning God is taking delight 
in the faithful response, the trusting response of the man of faith who is willing to let the Lord direct his steps. Pretty awesome. Then we look at the believer's security then is highlighted by verse 24. This is one of the best passages in the Bible about how you cannot lose your salvation because you never did anything to earn it or merit it to begin with. How could you lose it as a result of something that you've done when you couldn't have done anything to earn it in the beginning? God had to give it to you, meaning it had to be freely given and freely received, and he did it in a way where he is a faithful God. He did it in keeping with his faithful character. He was the one who was responsible for your eternal well-being in response to your accepting the gift he offers. But the security of your position in his family wasn't as a byproduct of something that you would do. It was as a byproduct of him being a promise-keeping God and saying, the moment that you put your trust in me, you are sealed by my spirit. You are given everlasting life. He He says that you are placed in my hand and nothing will be able to separate you from my love. He says that you are adopted into my family. You become a son of God and I will never let you go. Now you say, where, where else can you find that? Well, right here. Now we're talking about the man who's responding by faith. The man, the man of faith, the good man. But the steps of the good man. Now he, that's that person, though he falls, the one who is trusting God, he shall not be utterly cast down. Do we fall at times? Do we fail at times? Do we miss the mark? Do we, do we turn away from the Lord at times? Do we live lives that don't please Him? Do we do our own thing? The answer is yes. The whole Bible is written to people who are not consistently responding to the Lord's direction for their lives. The entire thing is about it. Why? Because that's the nature of man, is that they're having this spiritual battle between the things of the world and the, and the direction of the flesh and the direction of the sin nature and this spiritual conflict that's raging with the regenerating effects of God in their lives and the direction that God wants to move their lives. And consistently, we're reading about people who sometimes get it right when they respond by faith and let God work in their life, but then the very next page, they've got it wrong again. Some of them nationally, some of them individually, some of them with different titles, some of them kings, some of them paupers, some of them lepers, some of them apostles, some of, some of them with a wide variety of backgrounds, and all of them living out the same issue, which is that when you're not looking to the Lord and depending on the Lord, you're not prospering, you're not living a life that would bring Him glory. So what is all of the instruction focused on? Change your thinking, change your mind, change your thinking, change your mind. Remember what I've done for you. Remember my plan for your life. Quit doing your own thing. None of it is about losing your sonship. None of it is about being kicked out of God's family. Because here we have it, the Lord is holding him in his hands. God is faithful, though we are unfaithful. God remains faithful. Still, God holds him in his hands even when he falls. Now, we look at this last section. The last section is, I would just characterize it as some closing exhortations and encouragements that are being made to believers, being made to men men and women of faith. And so we'll read it. We're not going to have time to make a lot of observations from it. But it says this. This is, I have been young and now I'm old. I feel that some days. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. He, God, is ever merciful and, and lends. And his descendants are blessed. No, he's not referring to God there. That person that's described as being right with God is ever merciful and lends. 
meaning he's generous, and his descendants are blessed as a result. Depart from evil, now here comes some exhortations, depart from evil and do good. And what's the result? You'll dwell forevermore, and in the context here, it's dwell forevermore in the land, the promised land. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever because of their faithfulness? No, because of his faithfulness. But the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off and the righteous shall inherit the land. What land? The promised land. And dwell in it forever. What land? The promised land. Because God keeps his promises. Verse 30, the mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of justice. The law of God is in his heart. The one who's trusting God has God working in his life, and this is the kind of thing that flows from that. None of his steps shall slide. Wouldn't we want this kind of a life? This is the life that would come from trusting God. Now, what's the contrast? The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him, meaning the wicked does have evil motives. But the Lord will not leave him in his hand, the hand of the wicked, nor condemn him when he is judged. Now, 34, here's an encouragement. Here's an exhortation. Action, action verb here again, wait on the Lord. We've seen that already. And keep his way. We've seen that already. Do good, same thing as keeping his way. Waiting on the Lord, keeping his way. And he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree, meaning in this life, there's lots of prosperity from evil. But verse 36, yet he passed away. It won't prosper in the long run. And behold, he was no more. Who? The one who had rejected God, the one without God, the ungodly. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. So then he says, 37, mark the blameless man and observe the upright. Take the example that they have. For the future of that man is what? Peace. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he's trusting thee. We're back to trusting in God. The result of that is that you'd be described as a godly man, a blameless man, an upright man. Not because you are, but because that's the description of the one who is presently trusting God. And the future of that man is peace. That's how you experience God's peace. Instead of resisting him, fighting him, doing your own, your own thing, going your own way, op opposing him, rejecting him, instead trust him. And that man will experience God's peace. Now 38, but the transgressors, here's our contrast again, shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Again, this is repetitive. That's what he's already talked about. There's no future to envy on the part of the wicked. 39 through 40 here are like a closing, a closing kind of a conclusion. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them he shall deliver them from the wicked and save them. Now catch this last line. Because they trust in him. That's the third time he's talked about trusting in the Lord. You see, he presents this last section from the perspective of wisdom that he's learned through experience, the psalmist. And there's this summary encouragement that's given first, which is God is faithful and good. God is faithful and good. That's what he's saying there in verse 25. He says, I've never seen him fail yet. If you want to know what, what 25 and 26 says, God is faithful and good. I've never seen him fail yet. And then he's making these various exhortations, encouragements. He's making these continuing contrasts between those that are responding in faith who are trusting the Lord and those that are ungodly or have rejected him. 
And he talks about how God is going to keep his promises. Now, some of them are dealing with the covenant promise regarding the land. They'll dwell there forevermore, living in the promised land. You see, God promised them that they would have ownership of the land. It was an unconditional promise that was made. But present occupation of the land was a conditional promise. It was conditioned on a response of faith. Conditioned on a response of faith. One day, God in terms of eternally, not in the temporal sense, but in the eternal sense, God will keep his promise, and that's unconditional, and they will be in the land in faith, fully occupying the land. Now, another contrast you know, is consistently made throughout this section about the godly and the ungodly, but I want to just end with the focus here on these exhortations. He says, wait on or put your hope and confidence in the Lord. Keep his ways. That will be something that God can bless. And and I like how verses 39 through 40, they talk about this idea that God and his provision for man is always the proper focus. You notice when you read 39 through 40 as as we end this psalm, it's all about what God is doing. The salvation of the righteous, now look, get it, is not from self-help, it's from the Lord. He, God is the strength, is their strength. The Lord shall help them. The Lord shall deliver them in 40a. God will deliver them from the wicked. God will save them. Now, you come to the last part of that. See, God's provision, it's, it's accessed and it's enjoyed as a byproduct of trusting Him. If you want to experience the good life, then it's going to come from learning to trust in the Lord. It's repeated three times in this psalm. So you think, what a, what a great reminder that only a life of faith is truly beneficial Only a life of faith could be described as a good life. The focus, it needs to be on the Lord. We have this tendency to have our focus being on those that are living without God in their lives, and you're like, why are we focused on them? God doesn't need us to be focused on them. He needs us to be focused on Him. And so instead of worrying about or envying the ungodly, we should be celebrating God's provision in our lives. And we should be responding with this idea that we need to regularly be reminded that the issue isn't, the issue in my life isn't the lost, it's not others, it's not the world, it's not Satan. The issue in my life is, will I trust him or will I not trust him? By God's grace, hopefully, we can each learn to trust God more and more and more in our life so we can say, we can kind of sit back in that place of restful dependence on God and we could throw our feet up in the earth, so to speak, and we could sort of sigh as we would say, now this, now this is the good life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for this psalm, this encouragement to trust you so that we could experience all of the blessings that you have promised in our lives, not in terms of material things, but all the spiritual blessings that come with enjoying you pray that we could see that to lean on our own understanding or to trust our own strength is a fool's errand, that we would learn through past experience that nothing good can come from that, that we're not sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being of ourselves, that we would find our sufficiency in you as a result of your gracious dealings with us and that we would praise you, we would celebrate you, we would reflect your light into the places and spaces that you direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, anyone have any prayer requests? Yes.
And is that S-H-A-D? Anyone else? Okay, I'll try to update the prayer list. If you have time to stay and pray with others that are here, this is a good time for that. All the back doors are, are shut, so we'll try to kind of keep the kids and the noise out of here. But if you have a few minutes to pray with others, that'd be great. If you have time to stay in fellowship, that's wonderful too. But you're dismissed. <laughs>